Hello and welcome to a public lecture recording from La Trobe, Asia. The lecture you're about to hear is from Dr. Jeff Raby, former Australian ambassador to China and an alumni from La Trobe University. He's introduced by La Trobe Asia's director, Professor Nick Bisley. The topic was China Unwrapped, Prosperity, Politics and the Implications for Australia. The next event for La Trobe Asia will be on Friday 12th of December at the State Library of Victoria, commencing at 3pm. A panel of speakers will be addressing the issue of reproductive travel and the implications of surrogacy in Asia. And you can find out more about that lecture at latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. But for now, here's Nick Bisley. Good evening. Um, my name is Nick Bisley. I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Uh, and it's my job to introduce the, tonight's event. As all of you will know, China is of huge importance uh, to Australia and to the world. Uh, its transformation over the past 30 or 40 years has been uh, one of the epoch-turning events uh, of the recent past. In fact, um, when your children are enrolled at La Trobe University doing degrees, assuming I haven't been shuffled off the university in 30 years' time, um, we will look back on the period of the past 30 years as one of the turning points in human history, as the transformation of the, the life chances of more than a billion people have been fundamentally changed in a generation. And we've never seen the size, scale or speed of transformation of a human population of that kind ever. But China is now at a real turning point. Where China is going, how it will develop, the level of economic prosperity that it is likely to enjoy is something that matters for everyone, not just most immediately for the Chinese, uh, but for the rest of the world. It matters environmentally, it matters economically, it matters strategically. Uh, and we're extremely fortunate that La Trobe Asia is able to call on one of uh, Australia's and indeed I think the world's leading experts on China to give us an insight into where China is headed and what we can expect from it over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. Uh, tonight's speaker, as you will all know, because you are here, um, is Dr Jeff Raby. Uh, Jeff is probably best known as uh, Australia's ambassador to Australia between 2007 and 2011. Uh, but prior to taking up that appointment, and it was during that period that I think Australian, uh, uh, Sino-Australian relations were probably at their most difficult, particularly in around 2009 and 2010. Uh, and it was, a, I think, a particularly challenging period, uh, given not only efforts by China to test, I think, Australia's relations, but also the proclivities of the Prime Minister of the day um, made that, I think, a not inconsiderable challenge from a professional point of view. Uh, Prior to taking on the position as ambassador to China, uh, Jeff had a long and very distinguished career as a public servant in Canberra. Uh, he was in at the ground floor on ONA in the uh, mid, mid to late 1970s. Uh, he served in the Beijing embassy between 1986 and 1991 and crossed swords, well not swords, but crossed paths uh, once again with um, he whose name shall not be mentioned. Uh, I, most interestingly, when I was looking at Jeff's background, I was... Um, very interested to see that he headed, in fact, founded and headed up um, what became, the, I think, quite, well, if you're a policy wonk, the legendary East Asia Analytical Unit in DFAT. It actually started life as the Northeast Asia Analytical Unit, but it was, in many respects, uh, the policy brain behind Australia's engagement with Asia in, at the time when that was a really new policy development. And I think much of what we in, the, in Australia do in uh, the region diplomatically and economically, you can trace back to that, um, that period. He was ambassador to the WTO in 1998 and 2001, and again uh, in 2001, of course, saw China's accession to the WTO uh, and was 
uh, Australia's ambassador to APEC between 2002 and 2004. Although if you're, if you're like me and something of a sceptic, or not a sceptic, but have some pity for APEC, that might have been a punishment posting um, in, in foreign policy terms. And then prior to taking on his, immediately prior to taking on his position uh, as ambassador to China, he was deputy secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, and Jeff has many honours, one of which is a Distinguished Alumni Award from the Trobe University, but he also holds Chile's highest civilian honour for non-Chilean citizens. He's a member of the Order of Bernardo O'Higgins. And if you're wondering who Bernardo O'Higgins is, with a, what sounds like a decidedly non-Chilean name, he was in fact the, the, the general who oversaw um, Chile's independence movement in the mid-19th century. Uh, since retiring as Australia's ambassador uh, and retiring from public service, Jeff as the founding CEO of Jeff Rabian Associates. He sits on many boards in Australia. He's the, clear, the chair, rather, of Smart Trans and on the boards of Forte, For, I can't even speak, Fortescue and Oceania Gold. Uh, as I said, there is no uh, person better placed, I think, to shed light on China or more precisely to unwrap China for us. Uh, Jeff. Thanks for that uh, introduction, uh, Nick. Uh, Pre-Vice-Chancellor, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Thanks for coming out on a beautiful sunny day and uh, spending some time with us here uh, at this La Trobe lecture. Um, I'm delighted to be here at the State Library, not least because I've spent many, many hours in the archives here doing a lot of postgraduate research when I was at La Trobe. Uh, La Trobe's my old uh, alma mater and I do uh, enjoy and value uh, contributing to the life of the university. And, of course, I'm bemused to think that uh, I belong to an elite group comprising just a handful of people on the globe uh, who have three, not one or two, but three successive degrees from La Trobe University. Uh, so, therefore, it won't surprise you either that I'm proud to be a distinguished alumnus. But La Trobe was very uh, good to me, and I do owe it a great deal. Um, seeing there's also a lot of students here, I thought I might... Uh, just spend a little while before going on to Unwrapping China to talk a little bit about um, uh, my days at La Trobe and I guess the journey that got me to be Australia's ambassador to China. Um, it all seems uh, a long time ago and of course it was. I studied economics mainly because my father was opposed to my studying political science in, in case it somehow would subvert me. In the years before going to La Trobe, we had, my father and I, exhausted ourselves in arguments over the Vietnam War. Uh, he had fought in the North African campaign against the brilliant German General Rommel during the Second World War, and his father had been in the Australian Third Light Horse in Gallipoli. Whitlam had just been elected, conscription was abolished in the very month that I was to have registered for the draft, and our troops were being pulled out of Vietnam. Whitlam also recognised Communist China, or Red China, uh, as was more commonly called, as one of his first acts on becoming Prime Minister. At the time, it felt, the election of Whitlam, that my generation had won a great victory over my father's generation. And so I no longer felt the need to win another point uh, on the issue of my studies and went along and enrolled in economics at what was grandly called in those days, and I'm not sure what it's called these days, the School of Economics at La Trobe University. Having grown up in Ivanhoe, which in those days was almost an outer suburb of Melbourne, La Trobe was convenient. It was virtually just down the road. At the time, the young, brash university was known as a radical university. It had a particularly 
it had a politically active student population opposed to the Vietnam War. Several of its student leaders had until just before Whitlam's election been incarcerated in Pentridge Prison near Coburg, uh, which is now, I think, the prison's now a, a flash block of flats. Um, and my first day, my very first day at La Trobe was unforgettable. As I wandered around the Donald Whitehead building, uh, signing up for tutorials on bits of scrappy paper stuck on the office doors of our tutors, suddenly we were caught up in a maelstrom of shouting and pushing of students and uniformed police. A riot had broken out in protest over the visit to the campus of the South Vietnamese Deputy Prime Minister. Consider that a Deputy Prime Minister from a country that no longer exists. For some inexplicable reason, he had decided to come to the Trobe, of all places, to give a public lecture. So um, the La Trobe public uh, lecture series has uh, an interesting history, you might say. Um, but although it wasn't all downhill from there, certainly the subsequent weeks and years of study didn't quite match the excitement of my first day. I did, however, relish my studies, and La Trobe provided enormous scope for a young person who became more and more intellectually curious the more I studied. My math skills were barely up to scratch for the task, and I struggled through core economic theory courses, but conceptually understood the subjects. La Trobe in those days, however, offered an extensive menu of subjects in the discipline, many of which probably today are no longer taught due to lack of popular demand, or the march of history. I relish subjects with what would today be regarded as quaint titles, such as the history of economic thought, which was about the individuals and the historical circumstances and the philosophical underpinnings of economics. Or comparative economic systems, the study of the former Soviet Union and its East European satellite, which of course is today a Cold War relic. Economic history, in which I did my post-grad work, hence the time I spent in the library here, uh, would now be thought of perhaps as the study of long-run economic growth, if anyone still studies such things these days. And economic development, the study of the economic challenges of what we once called, but no more, the third world. They all seem to be like museum pieces as I go through them. Careers, however, often entail a lot of serendipity, and mine certainly did. But as it turned out, nothing equipped me better for a career in public policy and diplomacy than those subjects studied at La Trobe. I had no idea that China would account for such a big part of my professional life when I was at La Trobe. But over the almost 30 years I have been involved on and off with China, my La Trobe education has given me sufficient technical skills, but more importantly, intellectual breadth and reach. It also never extinguished my curiosity. And so, to the subject of this evening's lecture. The allusion in the title of this lecture, China Unwrapped, is intended to be to Winston Churchill's description of the Soviet Union as, and I quote, an enigma inside a puzzle wrapped in a mystery. China is endlessly fascinating to watch and to engage with. Its political processes and government continue to be so opaque and its complex history does much to shape contemporary conditions, while its rich cultural, tradi cultural traditions and manners crystallise assumptions by the Chinese about themselves and, importantly, about others. 
Today, China seems to be going through another extraordinary period of transition. The extent of this and the risks involved for the leadership were not expected or anticipated before Xi Jinping assumed power. In unwrapping China, I will suggest several somewhat contrarian interpretations of what is happening and where China might be going. These are not intended to be contrarian for the sake of it, and they are not entirely mine alone. But perhaps taken together, covering China's political situation, economic trajectory and geopolitical stance, they will suggest a China somewhat at odds with conventional wisdom, especially that found in the easy assumptions of much of the news media. We did not know at the time when, in November 2012, she took over the key positions of party leader and chairman of the Central Military Commission, that he would emerge as the most powerful leader in China since Mao Zedong in the 1950s. The era of Xi Jinping is well underway. Unlike his predecessors, including Deng Xiaoping, Xi does not have to contend with powerful peers or former leaders, with the exception of the aged and ailing Jiang Zemin. And while Jiang is still a formidable political presence, we must keep in mind that Xi's promotion would have had to have had his imprimatur. Xi was handed the job with a reasonably free reign to clean up the Communist Party, strengthen its grip on the country that is undergoing profound economic and social change, and begin to assert China's standing in the world more forcefully. To do this, Xi launched the anti-corruption and party rectification campaigns. In language, design, and ruthlessness, they hark back to political campaigns or purges of the past. One of the great curiosities of the current campaigns, however, is that they are being carried out, at least in the urban areas of China, in a modern, open and internationally connected society, where most people network and communicate directly via their mobile phones on social networking sites. With a little more time, I believe we will see that the anti-corruption campaign in its early days was largely a political campaign. It was about dispatching Xi's actual and potential opponents. When Xi said he was going to catch tigers, senior political and business figures, as well as flies in his anti-corruption net, he meant it. And at the time, few believed he would. Xi has brought down former Standing Committee member Zhou Yongkang and the powerful networks of influence and corruption associated with Zhou. Xi has disrupted, if not smashed, Zhou's former power bases in Petrochina and Sichuan province, as well as in many municipalities around the country. Having done so successfully, the first phase of this campaign is now probably over. Attention from now on will be focused on corruption for corruption's sake. Political agendas, while ever present, will unlikely be at the fore as they have been over the past two years. It's important, as best we can, to try then and understand what it is all about and what is motivating and driving Xi Jinping. Although we're unlikely to ever know definitively, we know enough about Xi to hazard an informed guess. Xi is clearly a patriot. He also believes that the Communist Party is the only institutional arrangement in China today 
that can keep China together and make it strong with growing prosperity at home and international prestige and respect abroad. Xi's father was also one of the fabled revolutionary leaders and heroes before 1949. He was commander of the Shaanxi military region and was widely credited to have saved the Long March when it ended up in Shaanxi and then was installed in the case of Yan'an until the end of the war with Japan. Many thought that Xi's father deserved a leading spot in the post-revolution firmament. But Xi's father was pushed aside by a jealous Mao and, like others of his stature, was victimized during the Cultural Revolution. When she was appointing, appointed vice president in October, 2000, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, October 2007, many thought that justice had finally been done to Xi's family. So it is likely that filial piety, doing good works for his now deceased father, is an important force driving Xi. By the way, his mother is still alive and is living in Shenzhen, where Xi's father was sent by Deng Xiaoping after the bloody June 1989 crackdown in Tiananmen Square. This was to keep Xi's father out of the way and, to do, and, and have him to do something useful, to drive experimental economic reforms in the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone. Xi's father had been one of the small group of elders who had opposed Deng's use of, military, opposed Deng's use of the military against the demonstrators. Xi's policies then are intended to strengthen and entrench further Communist Party rule in China. I can imagine every day that when Xi is standing in front of the mirror shaving, he's looking into it and saying, I am not Gorbachev. I am not Gorbachev. Xi has shown that he's not a liberal uh, or does he have ambitions for political reform. The just concluded fourth plenum of the party last week was about fine tuning the legal system and limiting judicial abuse, not about protecting individual rights in the courts, let alone the rule of law. She would want his legacy to be a strong and respected Communist Party ruling over a successful China. To that end, she needs to make the economy work and to keep it delivering rising living standards. At present, and especially outside China, a lot of pessimism is felt about China's economic outlook. China has had an internationally unprecedented, protracted period of rapid economic growth. Since Deng tentatively launched the open door and reform policies in 1978, China has experienced 36 years of growth over which the annual average rate was just under 10%. The Chinese economy has also become deeply integrated into the international economic system. By the early 2000s, it was open, it was more open and more engaged with the global economy than either the then contemporary Japan or Korea, even though those countries were both much richer than China. Following Tiananmen Square, the party struck an implicit compact with the people. It would deliver rapidly rising living standards while at the same time getting out of the minute of the daily minute of people's lives. This social compact has continued into the Xi era. Xi, however, has inherited an economy that looks as if it's starting to run out of puff. Clearly, China is going through a cyclical downturn. 
Though with growth rates over the past three years of something over 7% per annum, its growth is still impressive and significant, both for itself and in regional and global terms. China's economy in absolute size has more than doubled in the past eight years and is now the second biggest in the world. In terms of absolute increase in economic output, an economy of China's size today, growing at 7% plus, is equal to a 12% growth rate off an economy the size of China's in 2006. If such growth rates are sustained, the Chinese economy is more or less likely to double in size again within the next 10 years. Increasingly, however, uh, concerns are raised that China's growth potential is weakening, some believe rapidly, and that China may find itself in a low-level equilibrium trap with long-term growth flatlining at only a fraction of the rate of the past 30 years. Two reasons are mainly cited for this. One is that China's debt has risen rapidly in the post-global financial crisis period. It's more than doubled to, 400, oh sorry, to 240% of GDP, although this is still small relative to many developed economies, such as the US, where total debt is 330% of GDP. The burden of debt service is, however, increasing and uh, reduces capital available for investment elsewhere. The other is that, the other reason growth may be slowing, is that the marginal efficiency of capital is in secular long-run decline, which means China needs to invest more for an ever-diminishing increase in GDP. This, in turn, will make debt servicing more difficult. These pressures are compounded by continuing weak growth in the rest of the world, especially in the rich countries. While internally, China's own ageing population will see, for the first time in China's history, will see next year the dependency ratio rising. These concerns are valid, but they're not the whole story. Debt, while large, is not unmanageable, and China retains capital controls and holds foreign exchange reserves in excess, in excess of four trillion US dollars. It's not vulnerable to capital flight in the way that Asian economies were during the crisis of 1997. While China continues to run current account surpluses in most years, thereby contributing to sustaining its high levels of reserves, net exports, that's exports minus imports, are no longer a major source of growth, as they were in the, early, uh, in the earlier stages of China's platinum age of growth. China's growth is now much more domestically driven, relying on investment as in its traditional growth model, but increasingly based on consumption. Offsetting pressures for diminishing returns to investment, however, are several powerful drivers of long-run productivity growth. Productivity growth is the key to whether China avoids a low or even a middle income trap. In the interest of time, I'll just list four of these and then discuss the most important of all, Xi Jinping's economic reform program announced at the third plenum uh, in November last year. First, China still has a long way to go with urbanization. Some 300 million people will move to cities over the next 15 to 20 years, which is about the size or a bit more of the current population of the United States. Labor productivity in cities is higher than productivity in rural areas. And for those left on the farm, 
Productivity also rises because of the opportunities for farm consolidation and ensuing economies of scale. China is still a poor country, and so it has a lot of catch-up ahead of it. It is the 84th poorest uh, in the World Bank's league table. Its per capita income is just 15% uh, of that of the US today, and its per capita consumption of steel, for example, is where the US was in the 1950s, a figure that's uh, quite important if you happen to be on the board of an iron ore company in Australia. It is also way inside what we call the global production possibility frontier, which simply means it has years and years ahead of it to draw down on the global stock of technology. The Chinese government is investing massively in transport infrastructure. China is still a heavily transport-constrained economy. Consider this. Some 60% of all freight movements by rail and road in China comprise just one commodity, and one commodity only, and that, of course, is coal. Lowering transport constraints or removing them opens the opportunity for intra-regional specialisation, which will further contribute to raising productivity. While the greying of the population is an important headwind, in addition to the other drivers of long-run productivity growth just discussed, China has invested massively in education. Everyone entering the workforce today and into the future for many years will be very much better educated and trained than those whom they are replacing. But most critical of all will be for Xi to reinvigorate China's economic reforms to encourage greater competition in product and factor markets, to reform the financial system to allocate capital more efficiently, to wind back on the plethora of controls and regulations that protect state-owned enterprises, and to open the capital account further, including renminbi convertibility, so that there is a better fit between the domestic and international economies. Last November's plenum set a bold, ambitious, if not at times contradictory vision for doing just these things. Xi has set out to once again, like Deng Xiaoping over three decades ago, to transform the Chinese economy yet again. At its core is the objective of allowing markets to play the decisive role in driving the economy. This was the first time in the entire reform period that the market was given priority over the state. Moreover, the private sector uh, is to be put on the same level as a state-owned sector. Again, a first. And state-owned enterprises were directed to begin experiments with multiple forms of ownership, namely opening them to private capital. Much else was in the decision, as it is known, from last year. In fact, there were something like 60 policies uh, released. Such is the breadth and complexity and the contradictions that it has been exceedingly difficult to work out what has really been achieved thus far. It seems at first that the track record is patchy. But a, a study that has just been completed by Dan Rosen from the Peterson Institute, which will be discussed and released at an Asia Society event in Sydney this coming Friday, provides, I believe, a balanced and detailed assessment of the program's implementation to date, and the first such assessment that we've had. It finds that much has been achieved. And although advance is along an uneven front, 
Deep changes are already starting to run through the Chinese economy as a result of Xi's policies. Forecasts uh, of the end of the long boom in China's economic growth, I believe, are clearly premature. At the same time, as a consequence of the economy's maturing, deeper structural changes are already well underway. For example, last year, for the first time in China's history, the services sector accounted for the biggest share of GDP, 46% compared to 44% for industry and just 10% for agriculture. This, of course, is just the pattern of growth that one would expect as incomes rise. And in many ways, I often describe what happens in China as, as you know, economics 101. It accords so much with uh, the expectations that one would have from studying long-run economic growth elsewhere. In China, however, given the continental size of the country, this, is, this has also a pronounced spatial dimension. China's eastern seaboard is in some places already at middle-income developed country levels, in per capita terms, while other areas have achieved uh, upper developing country level per capita incomes. It is here that the structural change into a services-based economy is now already well advanced. Another important aspect of China's growth over the past decade is that it is also increasingly being driven by the private sector. Major private sector firms such as Alibaba, Lenovo or Huawei have already emerged with a global presence. Another recent study uh, just released last month by someone that I regard as one of the most preeminent economists who has worked on China over the past 30 years, Nicholas Lardy, also of the Peterson Institute, has found in his recent study that the private sector has been the principal source of employment and income growth in China over the past decade, and it is now significantly bigger than the state-owned sector. Xi's reforms, in many ways, would therefore appear to be uh, pushing on, a, on an open door or swimming with the tide of where the economy is already going, and to that extent, they're likely to accelerate and further extend and deepen these trends that are already well underway. One of the biggest challenges I found as ambassador uh, was helping Canberra keep abreast of the contemporary realities of, of China, such as the speed of change. It's very hard for people, unless they're looking at it and living through it uh, on a regular basis, to really appreciate uh, how things are changing in front of your eyes. Uh, Lardy's study that I've just referred to uh, should help a great deal and certainly should challenge the stereotyped views of China's economy as being dominated by a relatively few big state-owned enterprises. It's still true in some sectors, like petroleum, coal, power and telecoms, that the SOEs are predominant, but it's no longer a useful generalisation for Chinese, the Chinese economy as a whole. So I believe China's economy still has a lot of growth left in it. And while investment and resource-intensive growth will gradually decline in importance, uh, as consumption and services take up the strain, these older sources of growth will nonetheless remain important for a long time still, and of course very important for Australia, given that the resources and energy uh, sectors uh, feature so predominantly in our bilateral trade.
So Xi's era looks to consist of a great measure of political authoritarianism with greater economic liberalism. It also seems that the economy will continue to deliver on the post-Tiananmen compact. Xi's era has also coincided with one of great geopolitical uncertainty. It is a major challenge for him to position China in this new international landscape as a major and influential power. Under Xi, we've seen a new assertiveness in foreign policy, notably in the South China Sea and with Japan, but also a greater open display of irritation with the United States. This latter has included a willingness to balance the US in its relationships. For example, moving closer to Russia and the various positions China has taken recently in the Middle East. Under Xi, China's new assertive foreign policy is here to stay. It will need to be treated as a permanent feature of the international landscape. Xi will also, and has started to do so already, seek to change aspects of the international system so they reflect the realities of the world economy in the 21st century and not those of the mid-20th century. We've seen this recently with China-led initiatives such as the BRICS Bank and the launch last week of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. And you may have seen some of my comments on the latter on the front pages of today's Financial Review. But this does not mean that China will become an aggressive, destabilising power seeking militarily to challenge the US strategic dominance in the Western Pacific. It might, it could, but I believe it is most unlikely. While in the West we are very alert and sensitive to China's military modernisation, and it is prudent that we should do so, the view of China that sees it as inevitably expansionist, leading inexorably to military conflict with the US, overlooks the view uh, of China's security priorities as seen from Beijing. Seen from Beijing, China's security concerns look very different than when viewed from Canberra or Washington. First and foremost, China is still an empire with unresolved territorial issues inside its borders. Tibet, Xinjiang, Taiwan, and now Hong Kong. These are the dominant security challenges that Beijing has to address every day. Second, China has 14 countries and 22,000 kilometers of land borders to defend. All except Pakistan have been sources of tension, sometimes armed conflict, and most definitely abiding mistrust. China's warmer relations with Russia of late cannot hide the deep mutual suspicion and mistrust that has long existed between them. Third, is North Korea and its unpredictability and potential for instability. A fourth is Japan and the deep historical animosity that infects that relationship. Fifth, is the fact that when China, as recently in the South China Sea, seeks to assert itself, it drives those countries into a closer alignment with the United States, thereby undermining its own longer-term strategic objectives. Finally, and most fundamentally, and the one that I think still is overlooked because it's so recent in terms of Chinese history, is that today 
China is utterly, utterly dependent on world markets for all the resources, energy, and increasingly food it needs for sustaining economic growth and rising living standards. In this view then, China can be thought of as a highly constrained power. That is, it's a great power with limited capacity to project power and to influence beyond its borders. This contrasts completely with the United States during its ascendancy when the United States had no internal security issues, peaceful borders, and all the resources it needed for its economic growth, except people, which had sucked in from Europe, already trained and educated in vast quantities. In summary then, China under Xi will continue to stand far apart from the global norms of political and social organization. Its economy is likely to continue to grow strongly, albeit well below average rates of the past decade, but it will be more market-oriented and draw more heavily on the deep entrepreneurial reserves of its private sector. While its foreign policy will continue to be assertive, as this rising power seeks to define its position in the international system, it will not seek to change the regional order militarily, but will try to do so through diplomacy and new institution building. For Australia, it means we will have to continue to deal with a stronger China, where differences over human rights and views on the structure of the regional order will need to be managed skillfully, while our economic dependence continues to deepen and spread throughout our economy. To finish, uh, China will continue to be interesting. Many thanks for your attention. Thanks, Jeff. I neglected to say in my introduction that Jeff has very kindly agreed to answer questions. For we've got the we've got the room for another thirty or forty minutes or so, um, and he'll take the questions. So I shall now sit down and um, let forth. But I did have someone tweet me. I'm going to take advantage of this and ask whether Australia should whether there should be investor state dispute settlement in a putative Australia-China free trade agreement. So that's yours. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm a bit conflicted on that myself. Uh, being an old WTO trade man, uh, I'm less enthusiastic than the, the people who are negotiating the FTA, but uh, China certainly would like to see that in. And I think uh, having myself actually started the FTA, it was my, I was the first person to go to the foreign minister and trade minister and then to the prime minister and propose that we negotiated FTA with China, that was 2003, and it took two years of torturous discussions and negotiations even to begin to launch an FTA, and here we are 10 years after the first negotiations began, and we're still doing it. I hope we can get it done during Xi's visit uh, next month to Australia, uh, not least because it's changed from being what we had then as an offensive agenda. We wanted to, to do what we called a world-class, fully comprehensive, liberalising, whatever you, you name it, FTA, to which the Chinese said, well, just tell us what you want. And we spent 10 years not telling them. And now it's become a defensive agenda because New Zealand has its FTA, Chile has its FTA, our competitors have a leg up in the market. And now when, we say, when they ask us what do we want, we say, just give us what New Zealand has. So, and, and that's going to be hard because the Chinese uh, uh, feel they probably gave a bit too much to New Zealand. So um, I, I can't imagine Australian Cabinet, though, signing off an FTA that has less than New Zealand. But uh, the next New Zealand ambassador to China is here, so you might wish to comment. <laughs>
Uh, excuse me for not standing up. I've got um, a thing in front of here. Um, Jeff, just a couple of... Um, it's three short questions. Um, when we were in China a couple of years ago on a study tour, um, one of the things I was interested in was the... Um, I don't think I pronounced it very well, but the hook, hook, hookah system. Hukou. Hukou system. Um, I have read that they are, um, tr- they are slowly changing this, but I just would like a sort of update of how people are... whether people are able more easily to move to, to the cities from the countryside. The other thing I remember learning was that um, the SMEs were finding it very hard to get um, financing from, from the banks. Um, the, the large state-owned banks were not interested in supporting the, uh, the smaller companies. And also, the, the Communist Party itself, you've talked of Xi and his power. Um, if you could just update us a little bit about the, the, the Communist Party, it did have about 80 million members. Is it, is it still, do, do people all sort of, is that one of the goals of their lives, to be in, a member of the Communist Party? Uh, thanks. Uh, on the hukou, uh, that was one of the decisions last year in the third plenum of that East Party Congress, uh, one of the 60 decisions, to um, move, uh, to basically uh, remove uh, hukou restrictions for settlement in big and medium-sized cities. Um, like so many of these policies in China, it's, it's, it's policy catching up with the reality. The fact is, is, and has been for some time, that people can move to cities. It's just a question of if you generate enough income, if your income's high enough, you then just supply your apartment, your social welfare service and things through the market. Um, but it's all part of a bigger policy agenda to encourage rural urban migration, to move people out of agriculture in order to... Um, Uh, as I said before, consolidate land. And the decision last year also included measures for trading land use rights um, in order to promote higher productivity in agriculture. Um, Your uh, second one was on um, funding of SMEs. Um, And uh, that's largely the other side of the shadow banking story. People get excited when they see the name shadow banking and think it must be something uh, pernicious, uh, 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 somehow, um, somehow irregular. But we all have shadow banking, uh, and it, it's, it exists to, um, to plug the gaps. It's a market response. It's a market reaction to um, gaps in the financial sector. Uh, China's state-owned enterprise-dominated financial sector is... is um, uh, I describe it as being constipated. It can't uh, price risk and can't lend very well to small and medium-sized enterprises. But that's changing rapidly. And this book uh, that Ladi's just uh, published from uh, Peterson Institute uh, has quite a bit on, on the um, non-state financing. And he would argue from a quick read of it that it's uh, today now a very important source of uh, investment funds. Thirdly, on the Communist Party, it's, I think, up to 84 million people. Um, it's, it's lost enormous amount of prestige and part of Xi's agenda and part of the reason why I believe you know, people like Jiang Zemin were prepared to uh, give Xi a fairly free hand in what he did, or what he does, rather, um, is because they all know that unless they do a lot to rebuild the prestige and image and clean up the Communist Party then the whole show could come flying apart. And um, I think there are people in China today who, who um, 
uh, aspire to become a, a party member. It's still an elitist thing. But this is where China Social is changing so rapidly because so many avenues of social advancement exist now in China outside the party. Um, it's lost a lot of its, its, its pulling power, if you like. And interesting things are happening. I think, for example, I know someone, a very senior banker who's, who's of the generation of what they call the Young Turks, the guys that are women after Tiananmen Square, uh, basically de designed and developed China's market authoritarian political model. You, know, you free up the market, but you hold tight control politically. Uh, he's just retired, and you listen to him, and he's quite bitter about the fact that some of his friends actually didn't join the party, didn't go down that route. He did. And at the end, he's now going to retirement, early 60s, um, and he, the rest of his life will be controlled and constrained by the party. He, he can't just jump on a plane and go to Cairns for a holiday. You know, he has to go through an elaborate procedure process. He's only allowed a couple of trips a year. The party controls those people still very, very tightly. Now, in another time or age, he would be proud of his party achievements. Today, the society's moved on and changed. My, at a very personal level, my, my, my partner's Chinese and um, her mother retired a couple of years ago at 62. She was an old-fashioned communist from uh, one of the planning bureaus in a province. And, you know, their pensions are not enough. Uh, they don't have an alternative future and there's not much they can do. And now that dreadful fellow Xi Jinping's even cracking down on corruption, so they can't get a bit extra on the side. So, you know, what... Do, what are you going to do? So it's a huge social change that's, that's rolling out through China at present. Um, one at the back and then... Thanks, Dr. Abbey. I'm Kate Ritchie from Chin Communications. Um, I wanted just to ask you about the um, various leaders that, well, you've worked with, with a couple of them, are uh, from Gough Whitlam, who was very far-sighted in establishing the relationship with China, uh, to Howard, who started out not liking China but became very pragmatic about it, to Rudd, who thought he knew everything about China but turned out not to know very much, to Gillard, who started out knowing very little but ended up very surprisingly establishing that great dialogue, to Abbott, uh, and particularly your thoughts on what, where Abbott's going to go and, and how, he's, how he's gone so far, perhaps. OK. Thank you. That's a nice part of the history. Um, Look, um, I, I think any government coming into power in Australia these days, the hardest relationship to deal with is China. Uh, it's the one that I don't really expect to be so difficult and it's the most uh, least understood. It's the least understood relationship. Um, that's because I think Australia almost uniquely is caught very much between its uh, enduring security alliance with the United States uh, relations with what we see as a like-minded country, very close relations with Japan and China, where we have this absolute preponderance of economic dependency. And I know from my years, uh, speaking candidly, doing China things, both in Canberra and particularly as ambassador, you had a sense that, that the ministers would wish China would go away or it wouldn't be so important. And that's partly why nearly every government rushes off and, and embraces India... Now, I hope I don't offend any Indians who are present here this evening, but I've seen wave after wave of Australian governments embrace India as an alternative to China. And as I say about India, it has potential and always will. 
And, and, and so the reality is, and Hawke understood this in 1983 when he first became Prime Minister, advised by Roscano, that there is a profound complementarity between Australia and China economically, and there's nothing you can do about it. And we all thought in the 80s that if China were to keep opening and liberalising, then we'd have a huge trade relationship. But no one anticipated the extent to which this would grow and how deep it is. So it's very difficult for Australian governments in their early years to get the footing right. And then there is the reality that China, as I say, stands so far apart from the international norms of political and social organisation. And so it takes time and, and disappointment and uh, some setbacks before both governments, both the Chinese and the Australian government, understand the sort of basic formula that I think Howard articulated so well in his very pragmatic approach to these things, that is just recognise there are things that we disagree on and we have these differences, but don't focus on them. Just focus on the things where our interests converge and build a relationship about that. And I know it's unsatisfactory from an idealist point of view in, in international relations, but it is you know, the pr pragmatic realist uh, way of dealing with China. And I think Abbott is very much a realist. Uh, Dr. Raby, Thelma Palbus. Uh, firstly, uh, I'm a graduate of La Trobe. Uh, I did my law degree there and a diploma of sociology going back a few years. Um, I'm a currently a lawyer, a family lawyer especially. I've just come back from China. I've just spent about five weeks in China. I've only been back a month. I attended an international family law conference in Shanghai and also organised my own study tour, very extensive, right through China to get a better idea of the people, the culture, the education, the family, because I do a lot of work with cultural diversity in my practice out in the western suburbs. So, But also I was following the local press uh, coverage while I was there. There's a couple of points which I'd like to raise uh, for your comment. Uh, is uh, She uh, travels to the Maldives and India while I was there. I was reading the local papers. Um, he's pumping of millions and millions of dollars into India's trains. Obviously, they need to be upgraded. Also, uh, huge amounts of money for ports. Uh, the local press was saying that he has the Silk Route and his ambition to follow that and develop things. But obviously, there's a hidden agenda there. He's, he's strengthening those people by giving them financial resources, especially India. Uh, and but also there is uh, there is going to be a price to pay. His what if I'd like your comment in terms of how he's strengthening his position in terms of that area, given the Japan and uh, the other problems he's facing. The second thing is about corruption. There was a lot happening while I was there. It was the mid autumn festival and the mooncakes and. She cutting down on excesses and even within the party or state organisations, they weren't allowed to uh, put in extra money or gifts or uh, the latest trend is uh, credit or cards, gift cards, as a way of sidetracking his uh, initiatives. Uh, even to the extent of the wrapping of mooncakes, he's really obviously wants to show the people he's really clamping down on excesses. Um, also, private, the third issue is private companies and corruption. There was a lot of big uh, international companies that were concerned that he was targeting them unfairly. Um, public housing is a very, very big problem because I, uh, I travelled very extensively and saw how appalling that is. 
And finally, the level of English and my experiences there. So there's quite a lot of things to do in those areas, but uh, especially if I you could comment on um, uh, his travels to the Maldives in India yeah. and where he's going and what it means for Australia. Yeah, Thank th you. Th thanks, thanks for asking that question. My speech was too long. I, I did want to actually touch on that, so I'm glad you've raised it. And just on the other things, just on the sort of... Um, the sort of superficial aspects of the anti-corruption campaign. I think we're all relieved that he's cracked down on mooncake giving. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, all the gangster restaurants have now got uh, pre-fix a set price lunches uh, going at a discount and you don't have to queue to get into a massage parlour these days. So, you know, it's getting good. It's getting good. It's better. Normality's returning. No, but seriously, on, on, on the Silk Road and on the relationships in the Indian Ocean, and you should have mentioned Burma there as well. It's extremely important in all of this. Hu Jintao, who's not remembered for very much, unfortunately, did make one memorable quote, uh, and that is that the Straits of Malacca are the, uh, is, is, the, is, is the boot on China's throat. Because most of China's trade has to go through the Straits of Malacca. And I said before that one of the big drivers of China's strategic outlook now is its utter dependence on resources and energy. Nearly everything goes through the Straits of Malacca. And China can't and will never control the Straits of Malacca whilst the US uh, is in town. So if you look what they're doing, and it's ramped up many-fold under Xi, there is a big strategic game going on, a big shift. China is doing everything it can to take the boot off its throat of the Straits of Malacca. Uh, the gas pipelines in Central Asia started under Hu, but have all been accelerated under Xi, the very new relationship with Russia. Of course, Putin doesn't have many friends left in the world these days, so he's embraced China, and China was happy for that, but, but they are this time. They've talked about these gas pipelines for years. Now it's for real. Um, the, pipe, the oil pipeline through to a new port they're building in Burma and, and eventually a railway, uh, so it'd be Kunming uh, uh, down to the port in Burma. All of this... And, and, and the Silk Road, the trains from Chongqing to Bremen or Hamburg in Germany, you know, 14 days now compared to uh, 60 days or something by, by water down the Yangtze and then by ship through the Suez Canal. All of this is a big shift in the world. And again, one of these things that's not really, I think, thought or discussed enough. You know, I, I don't exaggerate, but I, I gave a recent paper inside Macquarie Bank and said that... Um, that this is akin to Vasco da Gama going around the Cape of Good Hope, the digging of the Suez Canal or the digging of the Panama Canal. And once you get big shifts in, in trade flows and trade routes, and China's going to be the biggest country in the world, it's already the biggest trading nation in the world, that will have profound geopolitical uh, ramifications uh, 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 elsewhere, but particularly uh, across the region. So it's a very good question, and, and this is all, you know, it's, it's very real. It's, it's really uh, happening. It's underway. And uh, uh, it is a, a big moment in, in world history. Uh, thank you. Uh, I've got two questions. I'll try and keep them brief. Uh, the first is if you found, like, any surprises out of what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment. And my second question is, uh, when I went to China on an exchange, I found that uh, I was living with lots of international students and I found that whenever I wanted to relax, they'd pick a really good Hollywood movie. 
And they, it, some people found it really hard to get into uh, like Chinese uh, culture or movies in particular. And I'm wondering if that can be a bit of a like an impediment towards people really sort of understanding uh, Chinese culture because a lot of it is uh, does have that traditional focus. So do you think there are, uh, like that as a challenge would be overcome compared to very easily understandable, you know, diehard type movies? <laughs> okay, They're very good, very good, very interesting questions. Um, yeah, look on the um, uh, on Hong Kong. Uh, for me personally, the surprising thing was that. Beijing has handled it thus far, and I think will continue, with a fairly high degree of nuance and finesse. Uh, I do a monthly column in the Financial Review, and just I hadn't really thought that there'd be demonstrations in Hong Kong at this time, but it was just after the um, after the white paper, and I said that you know were things to happen in Hong Kong, whether it be you know civil disobedience, I, I doubted whether Beijing had the finesse, nuance, or skill to manage it, and I feared something you know, quite uh, tragic could happen. Well, I mean, they've, they've, they've managed it quite well. And it's interesting that um, after the use of the tear gas, they got rid of Zheng uh, Lijun uh, from overseeing this and put in Wang Yang. And Wang Yang is the former party secretary of Guangdong province. And Wang Yang handled that uh, Wen Chuan, uh, Wen, Wen, uh, yeah, Wen Chuan, um, riot of about two years ago when the fishermen took over the village, he negotiated that down and settled it in a very peaceful way. So we'll see and hopeful. On the uh, movie, very interesting question. Uh, one reason why my Chinese is so poor, apart from the fact that I didn't study it when I was young and I'm probably a bit thick, um, is that I could never bear to watch Chinese local television as my teachers kept telling me to do. And the best way to improve your Chinese is to sit and watch CCTV endlessly, but it just drives me nuts. It's so boring, so absolutely boring. However, we all watch Chinese movies. I mean, the Kung Fu is, is Chinese tradition. Um, uh, the um, uh, Chiang Kai-Gur and all of those famous directors are very popular in the West. But one thing was really interesting. The other night, on a, or the other month on a Cathay flight, I, I rarely watch movies, um, but uh, there was a movie called... I'm only going to the story to recommend it to you quite seriously. It's called uh, Black Coal Hard Ice. And it's uh, set in, in Shenyang. Uh, in a, it's a grainy, uh, grainy hard-edged uh, film noir. And it's got all the aspects of the best film noir from Europe. Yeah, apart from it's shot in grainy film and it's an incredibly interesting and bloody and gory murder plot uh, uh, with a super surprise ending, it also uh, has quite a bit of humour in it. So I can't remember what the... The, the Chinese doesn't translate the same, so you'll have to look... Um, you can't do a literal translation from the Chinese characters. But in English, it's, it's uh, what I say, black coal, hard ice. It's a terrific... And, and it does, it's, it's one of these things that, that does speak to an international audience uh, quite directly. Anyone else? Gra Graham Schaefer, Latrobe. Oh, sorry. Um, previous governments over the recent past have had a huge investment in education. One of the things I've noticed when I'm there talking to my academic colleagues, and I will proudly talk about our new building, and they'll talk about their new campus. It's like I'll see you a building and I'll raise you a campus. Okay. Does she have the same commitment? 
to education? Are we likely to see the same investment in education during his term as we have in the recent past? Yeah, I, I wouldn't imagine there'd be any slackening of that em emphasis and pace. They, are really, they really understand and they're into this. Um, and there's a big push in China to go from uh, made in China to created in China. Um, and there's a huge investment in the creative industries as well. A whole lot of things are happening because they understand that's all part of um, how they transition from the old model of you know, labour-intensive, low-value-added manufacturing to somewhere else uh, that's an economy with a higher wage, higher cost structure. I have a funny story. A few years ago, I went to the Harbin Institute of Technology. That, don't ask me why, but someone put in my program when I was ambassador and wandered along. And they said, uh, come to the computer uh, science faculty. I said, oh, okay, fine. Sorry, uh, the robotics faculty. So the robotics faculty. I said, okay, fine. And no particular interest. I go along. And they, they told me that there were a 1,000 professors working in that robotics faculty. Half were local and half were from equally from Japan and the United States on sabbaticals. So here you are. It's just one. I mean, who's heard of the Harbin Institute of Technology? But here you are, one institution, a 1,000 professors in a labour surplus economy working on robotics. And that's, I think, for me, was a very significant sort of observation to see that. Uh, the problem is they had a dancing robot to welcome me. So for the photos, I rushed up to the robot and tried to have a dance with it, uh, but unfortunately I broke one of its arms, <laughs> <laughs> to which they ushered me out and took me all over the place. But two hours later, as we are leaving, they were still working on the arm trying to get it back on. So I don't know if they mastered that part of the technology. Um, yeah, but uh, the other thing about I would share with you uh, I, I've met Xi Jinping a number of times, and I had the uh, good fortune, as ambassadors do, when people of that level travel to your home country, you travel with them. And I spent um, four days with him in June 2010. Um, it happened to be also the same week. Well, he, he began the week with Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister and ended the week with Julia Gillard as Prime Minister. <laughs> and someone in his delegation said, well, what happened? How can that happen? You, Surely you have to have an election. I thought, well, you're saying that. You've got form. Uh, but uh, I felt like actually saying that, but I, 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 uh, uh, ambassadorial restraint, I resisted. I did, however, say, say to him as my last comment, well, Vice Prime Minister, you've had a wonderful trip to Australia because we took him to Kakadu and all of that. You had a wonderful trip to Australia. Um, I guess you better come back soon. I thought it was hilarious, but... Uh, no one laughed with me. Uh, that was the last I, I saw of him. But why I tell this story is that I did travel with him and I, I've been with him a number of times in, in um, uh, China and I managed to have a long discussion with him in May of 2007 when he became party secretary of Shanghai for a very brief period before going up to Beijing. And my sense of the man is that he's sort of a, an autodidact. I mean, he, he's someone that seems to read everything, to know everything. Um, he went to Kakadu because he wanted to see Aboriginal art and to meet with Aborigines. And uh, he had read it and studied it. And fascinating, and just by chance, we didn't arrange it this way, after he'd been around, shown around, looking at a lot of ancient rock paintings and spent a lot of time, almost one-on-one -on -one with an interpreter, with the, with the guide, was sitting in the bus, a long, long trip from Kakadu, as you can imagine, back to Darwin, uh, 
And we're in the bus, and, and see, she himself insisted on travelling with the bus. We would have turned on a sort of limo and everything for him, but he, he travelled with the workers and so on, officials in the bus. But he kept saying to me, kept coming back to me, kept saying, Ambassador, what's that man going to do? You know, what happens... Oh, sorry, the, the, the guy told him he was the last of his clan, or the last of his tribe, and she couldn't get over this. He could not internalise that he's met the last person of a race. And how will this person marry? And what will they do? And it was just fascinating to just watch him coming back and back to it, trying to understand about Aboriginal society and current Australian society and how it all works. So, um, and I see that he's going to Tasmania on this trip. Uh, he's been to every, every uh, state in Australia except for Tasmania. And he hasn't been allowed to go, I don't think, by his officials because of uh, the Green Party and Bob Brown. But I think they're prepared to take a risk. But... I don't think there's any other world leader uh, who's been to every state of Australia, but Xi Jinping will once he's been to Tasmania. It's funny, he said to me, this is sort of his interest in these things, he said to me, um, uh, how many states, how many provinces in China have you been to? One of my claims to fame as ambassador is I'm the first Australian ambassador to go to every province of China, all 31 of them, officially. And when you're in the job, it turns out to be quite difficult because you don't have a lot of discretionary time. So therefore, you find yourself going back to certain provinces over and over again because of business. Um, and it gets harder to get to all the others uh, officially. I you know, did a lot of tourism in China. But um, uh, I said to him, look, I've been to, I've been to all but two. They said, well, which ones are those? And I said, well, one won't surprise you and uh, one will shock you. And he said, well, which one won't surprise me? And I said, Jiangsu. Well, not Jiangsu, uh, Jiangxi. Jiangxi. That's a quite an isolated, backward province, although very important for Chinese Communist Party revolutionary history. I said, Jiangxi. And he sort of muttered and said, oh, yeah, that's understandable. He said, well, what's going to shock me? I said, I have never been to Fujian. He said, you haven't been to Fujian, but I was the governor and I started the sister province relationship with Tasmania and I was there for 14 years and all these different jobs and you haven't been to Fujian. He said, why? And I said, well, it's like this. Um, the, uh, the party secretary never has any time to meet me when I go. And my policy was, with the exception of Shanghai and maybe uh, Guangzhou, that I would always want to see the party secretary when I visited a province. And he said, he said that's terrible. He said, you must go. He immediately told his secretary, his official helper, um, to ring the party secretary of uh, Fujian, Madame Su, Su uh, Madame Su, who had Madame Sun, who had just been appointed. She'd been party secretary of uh, Inner Mongolia, and she's now the party secretary of Tianjin. And she'd only been sort of recently in the job in Fujian. And so a week later, I got back to the embassy, and the staff were jumping up and down and saying, um, the Fujian party secretary's office has been on the phone three times a day. When can you go to Fujian? So I went. And she was, she was, she's very, very smart. Um, she said, I'm only free on a Saturday. You can only see me on a Saturday. I said, OK, that's fine. Well, I had to go. So I went. And uh, uh, we sat down. And I wasn't going to mention Xi Jinping, the reason why I was there, anything. And I was feeling distinctly awkward about the whole thing. And the first thing she said, well, you know why you're here? I sheepishly said, yes, yes. She said, well, you know, the vice president's instructed us, and so you're here. She said, well, seeing you're here, we might as well make the most of it. We then had actually a very good conversation, and there's a lot of interest for us in Fujian because of illegal immigration and so on and policing. We had a good discussion. And then we went and had lunch, and she really could hammer the baijiu, the white spirit. And so, so can I, and so she and I hammered. 
and we were the best of friends afterwards. But uh, I said an interesting insight, I think, of Xi Jinping as well. I mean, apart from the whole system, but he um, he's a very interesting individual, uh, and, and he's not that you know, aloof, removed Chinese leader in the way that Hu Jintao was, whom I also travelled with and, and, and met on a number of occasions. My name is Vidya from Latrobe. Uh, I want you to explain the correlation between the Chinese economy and Australian economy given the current general downturn in the ASX uh, performance. And like, what are the key indicators of the Chinese economy that is the, you consider the main driver of Australian economy? And then what are the key initiatives and policy that Australian government have uh, initiated or made in order to take the advantage of those key indicators. Thanks. Is this your uh, term paper that should have been in yesterday? <laughs> uh, just generally, yeah. Look, China's our largest export market. A couple of years ago, it overtook Japan. It takes something like 36% of our exports. At the height of our dependency of Japan, Japan never got over a quarter of our exports. So we're actually more dependent on, on China today than we even were on Britain before Britain joined the common market. Um, China's the biggest source of fee-paying students, second biggest source of tourists by number, biggest in terms of spend. It just goes on and on. Um, and China's investment's growing and all of that. So it, it just speaks for itself. We have a huge economic dependence and our economic cycles will be keyed in very closely to China's economic cycles now. And as I said earlier, that just comes from the profound interdependence between the economies based on comparative advantage and complementarity, and it's not going to change. Um, but, of course, as China goes through a decade more, I think, of growth and structural change, as I was alluding to in my paper, um, whilst the absolute consumption of resources from Australia will always be very big, the rate of growth is coming off quite quickly, so we're not going to get the same surge in demand and prices that we've had. The point about the stock exchange is interesting, or stock prices. I mean, stock prices are, are, are influenced by many things, not just your own domestic economic uh, rate of growth. And these days, with quantitative easing and speculation about what's going to happen with that and US interest rates and so on, there's a lot of factors at play. One point that is very interesting, though, and I'm on the board of a Chinese coal company in Australia, uh, is that about three years ago, the relationship between coal prices and the Australian dollar broke down. So when prices came off from their peaks two to three years ago, uh, instead of the dollar following coal prices down, which had been the long-run statistical correlation, uh, the Australian dollar kept going up and up and up. Um, and so something quite interesting is happening, and that will have an impact on, on, on stocks and, and the market, um, but quite whether this is just a, a, a short-term phenomenon or if it marks a deeper structural change, some of you brighter people here doing research on this will have to work it out. Tip. Oh, sorry. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Raby. Helene Chung, uh, very much appreciate your nice presence here this evening. Yes. Now, you have called Abbott a realist. You've also been highly critical of Australia not joining China's new bank. Now, 
given the present circumstances, the political situation in Australia and the world, how would you, if you were in Abbott's shoes, if you were Prime Minister of Australia, how would you handle the China issue? And in particular, if you agree it's necessary, how would you balance China and the US as so many commentators seem to think Australia should? Well, I, I, being, a, being a good old-fashioned uh, lefty, I wrote an article in the Menzies Institute uh, uh, papers uh, just before the election. Um, and really, I mean, I think the, the model is, is, is the Howard model. And when I say a realist, I think that, that Abbott will end up in that space eventually. It's not there that yet. But I think things like joining the, the uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank um, that's one of those ones where you've really got to balance other pressures, it would seem, uh, with what's in our much more uh, narrow interest. Um, I think it's a pity, really, because if we think uh, there are some issues, um, then we can get inside the organisation as a founder and have a lot of influence in shaping it in very positive, constructive ways. So my feeling is it's... It's, it's almost self-defeating. Um, but the other thing is, and it's not a question of realism or idealism, uh, but really just the speed at which things are changing, keeping a contemporary, a really contemporary understanding of what's going on. Because, as I said in my presentation, this is here to stay. China will systematically set out um, to restructure, not entirely, it's not a root and branch, but restructure the international arrangements and bodies uh, so it reflects more of the world of the second decade of the 21st century than the world of the uh, fifth decade of the 21st century, of the 20th century. And so, you know, the world has moved on and we all accept that the Bretton Woods institutions are imperfect and need substantial reform. Um, it's proved almost impossible to reform them to make them align with um, the reality of the world today. So it's not it should not be unexpected, nor is it unrealistic, which is really the point, or unreasonable, sorry, was the point I was making that China would set about doing this. And uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, who's obviously the, the doyen of realism in international relations, has just published a new book called World Order. And uh, uh, it's... it's I find it fascinating, but this is a theme he comes back to over and again, is that China, whilst it's a mem member of the Westphalian system of nation-states and subscribes to that quite strongly, uh, has also drawn the conclusion that the current order uh, does not reflect its interests or serve its interests as well as it might, and that as a great power, it has a, a duty, an obligation to set about reshaping the world order and the world institution. So, um, you know, it's, it's, as I said, it's a fascinating time. Watch this space. Tim. Uh, Jeff, um, thank you for a fantastic um, talk. Xi Jinping, as you say, it's been a fascinating two years seeing him get this power. He must have upset an awful lot of people. What's the risk? Is there much of a risk that he can't hold the power for the 10 years? And what comes after him? Is he bringing people up after to do the same thing? Yeah, it's a great question, Tim. And, and because the system's so opaque, you don't really know. There's a lot of you know, rumoured speculation. I think, although uh, his power is probably not unchallenged, and people are saying the fact that Zhou Yong Kang wasn't formally charged with anything last week 
shows that they don't have consensus around the table, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a challenge to Xi's power. I think part of the problem with Joe Yongkang's case, they don't know what to do with him. Because when such a senior political figure is eventually charged for all of this corruption and abuse of power and, and you know, the stories go on, what does it say to the people about the health of the Communist Party? I think they're really balancing that. I don't think so much she's being pushed back on that. Um, and it's something they just are trying to find the right time. So I, I think probably he has <coughs> consolidated his power to the point where he's dispatched most of the, the, the serious opponents. So I think he's, he's pretty good if he wants to be for, the, for his full term. And he's, he's done a lot of purging uh, in the army. And I don't think anyone expected any leader in China to take on the PLA. And a number have been arrested on corruption charges. And that's all part of the power struggle, which I think is probably over now. Um, so I think he's pretty good for the 10 years. But the, the question you, you also ask is one that bothers quite serious uh, intellectual people and people who think a lot about China and where it's going in China, Chinese, uh, part of the elites. And that is, well, you know, the last time all this power was concentrated in one person's hands was Mao, and he went nuts. And the Chinese system has a capacity to, to send people crazy from time to time or get them to do crazy things. And there is an abiding anxiety that, oh, what will she do with all the power ultimately? And, and what will he be committed to a transition? Because the problem is there are no institutional constraints. Uh, there have been constraints previously because you've had, if you like, collective leadership. But as far as we can tell from outside, peering in through the mist and fog of how it operates at the centre in China, it appears that if he is that powerful, then perhaps there are no constraints. So then there's the anxiety that you know, he, he might go crazy. But um, I, I think things like what I was talking about, which you don't get in most analysis about the filial piety dimensions, make me feel confident that she uh, will govern wisely uh, in a way which, first of all, is good for the Communist Party, which he equates as being good for China. OK, maybe we might make this... Last year, I need a drink. <laughs> I'm the lucky last one. Thanks, Dr. Rabi. Uh, thanks for your um, valuable insight on China. I was uh, born in China and brought up in China and finished my first degree in China. And then later on, I finished my second degree in Lecho University. And I can tell you got most of the culture bits right. So um, from your talk. And um, a year ago, I um, heard one of the uh, personnel from um, Austray Station in China commented that not many people in Canberra actually understand China. And um, considering also recently a very significant um, white paper uh, initiated by the previous Labour government called Asian Century was shelved. And there's no, at some stage, there's nowhere to be found on the government's website. So considering Chinese, uh, China's strategic importance to Australia, what is your comment on it? And my second question is, recently um, Russia has signed a big gas deal with China. Do you think that is going to impact to Australia's gas industry? Thank you. Uh, thanks. Uh, you know, I've been in China long enough to know... Uh, that things are opposite to what people say. So 
when I speak Chinese and people say, oh, you speak such good Chinese, I know they, they're saying your Chinese is crap. So when you tell me I know a lot about China, I, I know what you're really saying. So. <laughs> um, but thanks for the question. Yeah, um, I, I think there is a dearth of uh, China experience. I, I don't think you, you need to be a China expert. I think that all gets a bit confusing when we talk about that. But China experience, hands-on, having been, having been exposed, there's a dearth of that in, in Canberra, I think. And when I left as Deputy Secretary all of eight years ago now to go to China as ambassador, um, there was no one in the Deputy Secretary level uh, in all of Canberra, not just DFAT, that had had any direct China experience or exposure. And we only had, I think, one or two First Assistant Secretaries the next level down that had any direct uh, exposure in China. So that's a big slice of your upper echelon when you're dealing with your single largest trading partner, da 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 da. Um, so it's a good point. The Henry White paper, well, that's just Canberra. I mean, that's the inevitability of it all. And uh, uh, the mistake was that the paper was done within the bureaucracy largely, although Ken was still basically a public servant, um, and not done like the Gano. Uh, paper on, in 1989 on Australia and the, uh, 1990 I think, Australia and the North Asian Ascendancy, which was basically outside the bureaucracy. So, so Ghana was outside, DFAT provided a small secretariat, but it was nothing more than, much more than a typing pool. So it had its own independent authority in life, which um, Paul Ken's paper had to go through so many committees and interdepartmental processes and so on. Where it ended up is, is, is fairly inevitable, I think, once the government changed. Um, uh, your second point, sorry. Oh, uh, gas, gas, sorry. Uh, gas. Look, um, I think the Russian gas is quite expensive. Uh, our Northwest Shelf gas, gas is not that cheap either. Um, but uh, I think what you'll see, hopefully you'll see in China, is a big shift in the energy base away from coal. And part of that mix will have to be uh, LNG or gas. And there was a big frisson and enthusiasm a little while ago when the Americans started doing non-conventional gas, coal seam gas and so on, that China would do the same because China's got vast amounts. But China has no water. And you can't do coal seam gas without water. So I think there's a realisation that gas as an alternative source in the energy mix to coal is going to have to come from largely from uh, uh, some of their own offshore sources, but mainly from foreign offshore sources, be it Russia or Australia or Qatar uh, or Indonesia, perhaps. So I think that the market for gas will grow, and um, Russia is just an, another supplier to China along with, with ourselves. I'm hopeful about that, because if you have been in China for the last few days, last few weeks, and the, uh, the 2.5 index of pollutions regularly over 400. You can't wait for the gas to come quickly enough. Thanks very much. Sorry, Nick, I'm rambling on. The, the audience has beaten me to uh, thank you, but I think uh, we set the bar, bar high um, by billing uh, Jeff as one of the world's leading authorities on China. I think he's more than cleared it. Um, and I am entirely in agreement with you that the mooncakes um, are one of... <laughs> The, the, the less said, the better. Um, it remains for me to say, firstly, if we could all uh, express our thanks to Jeff for his time and for his insights.